Section 2 of The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ by Nicholas Natovich Translated by J. H. Connolly and L. Landsberg Chapter 2 A Journey in Tibet Part 2 How violent the contrast I felt when passing from the laughing nature and beautiful population of Kashmir to the arid and forbidding rocks and the beardless and ugly inhabitants of Ladakh. The country into which I penetrated is situated at an altitude of 11,000 to 12,000 feet. Only at Kargil the level descends to 8,000 feet. The acclivity of Zodgila is very rough, one must climb up an almost perpendicular rocky wall. In certain places the road winds along upon rock ledges of only a metre in width, below which the sight drops into unfathomable abysses. May the Lord preserve the traveller from a fall. At one place the way is upon long beams introduced into holes made in the rock, like a bridge, and covered up with earth. At the thought that a little stone might get loose, and roll down the slope of the mountain, or that a too strong oscillation of the beams could precipitate the whole structure into the abyss, and with it him who had ventured upon the perilous path, one feels like fainting more than once during this hazardous passage. After crossing the glaciers we stopped in a valley, and prepared to spend the night near a hut, a dismal place surrounded by eternal ice and snow. From Baltal the distances are determined by means of daks, i.e. postal stations for mail service. They are low huts, about seven kilometres distant from each other. A man is permanently established in each of these huts. The postal service between Kashmir and Tibet is yet carried on in a very primitive form. The letters are enclosed in a leather bag, which is handed to the care of a carrier. The latter runs rapidly over the seven kilometres assigned to him, carrying on his back a basket which holds several of these bags, which he delivers to another carrier, who in his turn accomplishes his task in an identical manner. Neither rain nor snow can arrest these carriers. In this way the mail service is carried on between Kashmir and Tibet and vice versa once a week. For each course the letter carrier is paid six anas, twenty cents the same wages as is paid to the carriers of merchandise. This sum I also pay to every one of my servants for carrying a ten times heavier load. It makes one's heart ache to see the pale and tired-looking figures of these carriers, but what is to be done? It is the custom of the country. The tea is brought from China by a similar system of transportation, which is rapid and inexpensive. In the village of Montean, I found again the Yarkandian caravan of pilgrims, whom I had promised to accompany on their journey. They recognized me from a distance, and asked me to examine one of their men who had fallen sick. I found him writhing in the agonies of an intense fever. Shaking my hands as a sign of despair, I pointed to the heavens and gave them to understand that human will and science were now useless, and that God alone could save him. These people journeyed by small stages only. I therefore left them, 
and arrived in the evening at Dras, situated at the bottom of a valley near a river of the same name. Near Dras, a little fort of ancient construction, but freshly painted, stands aloof under the guard of three Sikhs of the Maharaja's army. At Dras, my domicile was the post-house, which is a station, and the only one, of a unique telegraph line from Srinagar to the interior of the Himalayas. From that time on, I no more had my tent put up each evening, but stopped in the caravansaries, places which, though made repulsive by their dirt, are kept warm by the enormous piles of wood burned in their fireplaces. From Dras to Cargill, the landscape is unpleasing and monotonous if one accepts the marvellous effects of the rising and setting sun and the beautiful moonlight. Apart from these, the road is wearisome and abounding with dangers. Cargill is the principal place of the district, where the governor of the country resides. Its site is quite picturesque. Two watercourses, the Solron and the Waka, roll their noisy and turbulent waters among rocks and sunken snags of uprooted trees, escaping from their respective defiles in the rocks to join in forming here the river Solron, upon the banks of which stands Cargill. A little fort, garrisoned by two or three Sikhs, shows its outlines at the junction of the streams. Provided with a horse, I continued my journey at break of day, entering now the province of Ladakh, or Little Tibet. I traversed a rickety bridge, composed, like all the bridges of Kashmir, of two long beams, the ends of which were supported upon the banks, and the floor made of a layer of faggots and sticks, which imparted to the traveller at least the illusion of a suspension bridge. Soon afterward, I climbed slowly up on a little plateau, which crosses the way at a distance of two kilometres to descend into the narrow valley of Wakha. Here there are several villages, among which, on the left shore, is the very picturesque one called Paskyam. Here my feet trod Buddhist ground. The inhabitants are of a very simple and mild disposition, seemingly ignorant of quarrelling. Women are very rare among them. Those of them whom I encountered were distinguished from the women I had hitherto seen in India or Kashmir by the air of gaiety and prosperity apparent in their countenances. How could it be otherwise, since each woman in this country has on an average three to five husbands, and possesses them in the most legitimate way in the world? Polyandry flourishes here. However large a family may be, there is but one woman in it. If the family does not contain already more than two husbands, a bachelor may share its advantages for a consideration. The days sacred to each one of those husbands are determined in advance, and all acquit themselves of their respective duties and respect each other's rights. The men generally seem feeble with bent backs and do not live to old age. During my travels in Ladakh, I only encountered one man so old that his hair was white. From Kargil to the centre of Ladakh, the road had a more cheerful aspect than that I had traversed before reaching Kargil, its prospect being brightened by a number of little hamlets, but trees and verdure were unfortunately rare. Twenty miles from Kargil, at the end of the defile formed by the rapid current of the Waka, is a little village called Chagol in the centre of which stands three chapels, decorated with lively colours, Torthines to give them the name they bear in Tibet. 
Below, near the river, are masses of rocks in the form of long and large walls, upon which are thrown in apparent disorder flat stones of different colours and sizes. Upon these stones are engraved all sorts of prayers, in Urd, Sanskrit, and Tibetan, and one can even find among them inscriptions in Arabic characters. Without the knowledge of my carriers, I succeeded in taking away a few of these stones, which are now in the palace of the Trocadero. Along the way, from Chargol, one finds frequently oblong mounds, artificial constructions. After sunrise, with fresh horses, I resumed my journey and stopped near the Gunpa monastery of Molbeck, which seems glued on the flank of an isolated rock. Below is the hamlet of Waka, and not far from there is to be seen another rock of very strange form, which seems to have been placed where it stands by human hands. In one side of it is cut a Buddha several metres in height. Upon it are several cylinders, the turning of which serves for prayers. They are a sort of wooden barrel, draped with yellow or white fabrics, and are attached to vertically planted stakes. It requires only the least wind to make them turn. The person who put up one of these cylinders no longer feels it obligatory upon him to say his prayers, for all that devout believers can ask of God is written upon the cylinders. Seen from a distance, this white-painted monastery, standing sharply out from the grey background of the rocks, with all these whirling, petticoated wheels, produce a strange effect in this dead country. I left my horses in the hamlet of Waka, and, followed by my servant, walked toward the convent, which is reached by a narrow stairway cut in the rock. At the top I was received by a very fat lama, with a scanty straggling beard under his chin, a common characteristic of the Tibetan people, who was very ugly but very cordial. His costume consisted of a yellow robe and a sort of big nightcap with projecting flaps above the ears of the same colour. He held in his hand a copper prayer machine, which from time to time he shook with his left hand, without at all permitting that exercise to interfere with his conversation. It was his eternal prayer which he thus communicated to the wind, so that by this element it should be borne to heaven. We traversed a suite of low chambers, upon the walls of which were images of Buddha of all sizes and made of all kinds of materials, all alike covered by a thick layer of dust. Finally we reached an open terrace, from which the eyes, taking in the surrounding region, rested upon an inhospitable country, strewn with greyish rocks, and traversed by only a single road, which on both sides lost itself in the horizon. When we were seated, they brought us beer, made with hops, called here Chang, and brewed in the cloister. It has a tendency to rapidly produce embonpoint upon the monks, which is regarded as a sign of the particular favour of heaven. They spoke here the Tibetan language. The origin of this language is full of obscurity. One thing is certain, that a king of Tibet, a contemporary of Muhammad, undertook the creation of a universal language for all the disciples of Buddha. To this end he had simplified the Sanskrit grammar, composed an alphabet containing an infinite number of signs, and thus laid the foundations of a language the pronunciation of which is one of the easiest and the writing the most complicated. 
Indeed, in order to represent a sound, one must employ not less than eight characters. All the modern literature of Tibet is written in this language. The pure Tibetan is only spoken in Ladakh and Oriental Tibet. In all other parts of the country are employed dialects formed by the mixture of this mother language with different idioms taken from the neighboring peoples of the various regions round about. In the ordinary life of the Tibetan there exists always two languages, one of which is absolutely incomprehensible to the women, while the other is spoken by the entire nation, but only in the convents can be found the Tibetan language in all its purity and integrity. The Lamas much prefer the visits of Europeans to those of Muslimen, and when I asked the one who received me why this was so, he answered me, Muslimen have no point of contact at all with our religion, only comparatively recently, in their victorious campaign, they have converted, by force, part of the Buddhists to Islam. It requires of us great efforts to bring back those Muslimen, descendants of Buddhists, into the path of the true God. As regards the Europeans, it is quite a different affair. Not only do they profess the essential principles of monotheism, but they are, in a sense, adorers of Buddha, with almost the same rights as the lamas who inhabit Tibet. The only fault of the Christians is that after having adopted the great doctrines of Buddha, they have completely separated themselves from him, and have created for themselves a different Dalai Lama. Our Dalai Lama is the only one who has received the divine gift of seeing face to face the majesty of Buddha, and is empowered to serve as an intermediary between earth and heaven. Which Dalai Lama of the Christians do you refer to? I asked him. We have one, the Son of God, to whom we address directly our fervent prayers, and to him alone we recur to intercede with our one and indivisible God. It is not him of whom it is a question, Sahib, he replied. We too respect him, whom we reverence as son of the one and indivisible God, but we do not see in him the only son, but the excellent being who was chosen among all. Buddha, indeed, has incarnated himself with his divine nature in the person of the sacred Isa, who, without employing fire or iron, has gone forth to propagate our true and great religion among all the world. Him whom I meant was your terrestrial Dalai Lama, he to whom you have given the title of Father of the Church. That is a great sin. May he be brought back with the flock who are now in a bad road, piously added the Lama, giving another twirl to his prayer machine. I understood now that he alluded to the Pope. You have told me that a son of Buddha, Isa, the elect among all, had spread your religion on the earth. Who is he? I asked. At this question the lama's eyes opened wide. He looked at me with astonishment and pronounced some words I could not catch, murmuring in an unintelligible way. Isa, he finally replied, is a great prophet, one of the first after the twenty-two Buddhas. He is greater than any one of all the Dalai Lamas, for he constitutes part of the spirituality of our Lord. It is he who has instructed you, he who brought back into the bosom of God the frivolous and wicked souls, he who made you worthy of the beneficence of the Creator, who has ordained that each being should know good and evil. His name and his acts have been chronicled in our sacred writings, and when reading how his great life passed away in the midst of an erring people, we weep for the horrible sin of the heathen who murdered him after subjecting him to torture. 
I was struck by this recital of the Lama. The prophet Isa, his tortures and death, our Christian Dalai Lama, the Buddhist recognizing Christianity, all these made me think more and more of Jesus Christ. I asked my interpreter not to lose a single word of what the Lama told me. Where can those writings be found, and who compiled them? I asked the monk. The principal scrolls, which were written in India and Nepal, at different epochs, as the event happened, are in Lhasa, several thousands in number. In some great convents are to be found copies, which the Lamas, during their sojourn in Lhasa, have made at various times, and have then given to their cloisters as souvenirs of the period they spent with the Dalai Lama. But you yourselves, do you not possess copies of the scrolls bearing upon the prophet Issa? We have not. Our convent is insignificant, and since its foundation, our successive lamas have had only a few hundred manuscripts in their library. The great cloisters have several thousands of them, but they are sacred things which will not anywhere be shown to you. We spoke together a few minutes longer, after which I went home, all the while thinking of the Lama's statements. Isa, a prophet of the Buddhists? But how could this be? Of Jewish origin he lived in Palestine and in Egypt, and the Gospels do not contain one word, not even the least allusion, to the part which Buddhism should have played in the education of Jesus. I made up my mind to visit all the convents of Tibet, in the hope of gathering fuller information upon the prophet Issa, and perhaps copies of the chronicles bearing upon this subject. We traversed the Namikala Pass at thirty thousand feet of altitude, whence we descended into the valley of the river Salanuma. Turning southward, we gained Kabo, leaving behind us on the opposite bank numerous villages, among other, Shagdum, which is at the top of a rock, an extremely imposing sight. Its houses are white, and have a sort of festive look, with their two and three stories. This, by the way, is a common peculiarity of all the villages of Ladakh. The eye of the European, travelling in Kashmir, would soon lose sight of all architecture to which he had been accustomed. In Ladakh, on the contrary, he would be agreeably surprised at seeing the little two- and three-story houses, reminders to him of those in European provinces. Near the city of Kabo, upon two perpendicular rocks, one sees the ruins of a little town or village. A tempest and an earthquake are said to have shaken down its walls, the solidity of which seems to have been exceptional. The next day I traversed the Fotula Pass at an altitude of 13,500 feet. At its summit stands a little Torthine chapel. Thence, following the dry bed of a stream, I descended to the hamlet of Lamayur, the sudden appearance of which is a surprise to the traveller. A convent which seems grafted onto the side of the rock, or held there in some miraculous way, dominates the village. Stairs are unknown in this cloister. In order to pass from one story of it to another, ropes are used. Communication with the world outside is through a labyrinth of passages in the rock. Under the windows of the convent, which make one think of birds' nests on the face of a cliff, is a little inn, the rooms of which are little inviting. Hardly had I stretched myself on the carpet in one of them, when the monks, dressed in their yellow robes, filled the apartment, 
bothered me with questions as to whence I came, the purpose of my coming, where I was going, and so on, finally inviting me to come and see them. In spite of my fatigue I accepted their invitation, and set out with them to climb up the excavated passages in the rock, which were encumbered with an infinity of prayer cylinders and wheels, which I could not but touch, and set turning as I brushed past them. They are placed there that they may be so turned, saving to the passers-by the time they might otherwise lose in saying their prayers, as if their affairs were so absorbing, and their time so precious, that they could not find leisure to pray. Many pious Buddhists use for this purpose an apparatus arranged to be turned by the current of a stream. I have seen a long row of cylinders, provided with their prayer formulas, placed along a river bank, in such a way that the water kept them constantly in motion, this ingenious device freeing the proprietors from any further obligation to say prayers themselves. I sat down on a bench in the hall, where semi-obscurity reigned. The walls were garnished with little statues of Buddhas, books and prayer wheels. The loquacious lamas began explaining to me the significance of each object. And these books, I asked them, they no doubt have reference to religion? Yes, sir. There are a few religious volumes which deal with the primary and principal rites of the life common to all. We possess several parts of the words of Buddha consecrated to the great and indivisible divine being, and to all that issue from his hands. Is there not among those books some account of the prophet Isa? No, sir, answered the monk. We only possess a few principal treaties relating to the observance of the religious rites. As for the biographies of our saints, they are collected in Lhasa. There are even great cloisters which have not had the time to procure them. Before coming to this gonpa, I was for several years in a great convent on the other side of Ladakh, and have seen there thousands of books and scrolls copied out of various books by the lamas of the monastery. By some further interrogation I learned that the convent in question was near Leh, but my persistent inquiries had the effect of exciting the suspicions of the lamas. They showed me the way out with evident pleasure, and regaining my room I fell asleep, after a light lunch, leaving orders with my Hindu to inform himself in a skilful way from some of the younger lamas of the convent about the monastery in which their chief had lived before coming to Lamayir. In the morning when we set forth on our journey, the Hindu told me that he could get nothing from the lamas who were very reticent. I will not stop to describe the life of the monks in these convents, for it is the same in all the cloisters of Ladakh. I have seen the celebrated monastery of Leh, of which I shall have to speak later on, and learn there the strange existences the monks and religious people lead, which is everywhere the same. In Lamayur commences a declivity which through a steep, narrow, and sombre gorge extends towards India. Without having the least idea of the dangers which the descent presented, I sent my carriers in advance and started on a route, rather pleasant at the outset, which passes between the brown clay hills, but soon it produced upon me the most depressing effect, as though I was traversing a gloomy subterranean passage. Then the road came out on the flank of a mountain, above a terrible abyss. If a rider had met me, we could not possibly have passed each other, the way was so narrow. All description would fail to convey a sense of the grandeur and wild beauty of this cannon, the summit of the walls of which seemed to reach the sky. At some points 
it became so narrow that from my saddle I could, with my cane, touch the opposite rock. At other places, death might be fancied looking up expectantly from the abyss at the traveller. It was too late to dismount, and entering alone this gorge I had not the faintest idea that I would have occasion to regret my foolish imprudence. I had not realized its character. It was simply an enormous crevasse, rent by some titanic throw of nature, some tremendous earthquake, which had split the granite mountain. In its bottom I could just distinguish a hardly perceptible white thread, an impetuous torrent, the dull roar of which filled the defile with mysterious and impressive sounds. Far overhead extended, narrow and sinuously, a blue ribbon, the only glimpse of the celestial world that the frowning granite walls permitted to be seen. It was a thrilling pleasure, this majestic view of nature. At the same time, its rugged severity, the vastness of its proportions, the deathly silence only invaded by the ominous murmur from the depths beneath, altogether filled me with an unconquerable depression. I had about eight miles in which to experience these sensations, at once sweet and painful. Then, turning to the right, our little caravan reached a small valley, almost surrounded by precipitous granite rocks, which mirrored themselves in the Indus. On the bank of the river stands a little fortress, Khalsi, a celebrated fortification dating from the epoch of the Mussulman invasion, by which runs the wild road from Kashmir to Tibet. We crossed the Indus on an almost suspended bridge which led directly to the door of the fortress, thus impossible of evasion. Rapidly we traversed the valley, then the village of Khalsi, for I was anxious to spend the night in the hamlet of Snowley, which is placed upon terraces descending to the Indus. The two following days I travelled tranquilly and without any difficulties to overcome along the shore of the Indus, in a picturesque country, which brought me to Leh, the capital of Ladakh. While traversing the little valley of Saspula, at a distance of several kilometres from the village of the same name, I found Torthenes and two cloisters, above one of which floated the French flag. Later on I learned that a French engineer had presented the flag to the monks, who displayed it simply as a decoration of their building. I passed the night at Saspula, and certainly did not forget to visit the cloisters, seeing there for the tenth time the omnipresent dust-covered images of Buddha, the flags and banners heaped in a corner, ugly masks on the floor, books and papyrus rolls heaped together without order or care, and the inevitable abundance of prayer wheels. The lamas demonstrated a particular pleasure in exhibiting these things, doing it with the air of shopmen displaying their goods with very little care for the degree of interest the traveller may take in them. We must show everything, in the hope that the sight alone of these sacred objects will force the traveller to believe in the divine grandeur of the human soul. Respecting the prophet Issa, they gave me the same account I already had, and I learned what I had known before, that the books which could instruct me about him were at Lhasa, and that only the great monasteries possessed some copies. I did not think any more of passing Kara Korum, but only of finding the history of the prophet Issa, which would perhaps bring to light the entire life of the best of men, and complete the rather vague information which the Gospels afford us about him.
Not far from Le, and at the entrance of the valley of the same name, our road passed near an isolated rock, on the top of which were constructed a fort with two towers and without garrison, and a little convent named Pitak. A mountain ten thousand five hundred feet high protects the entrance to Tibet. There the road makes a sudden turn toward the north in the direction of Leh, six miles from Pitak and a thousand feet higher. Immense granite mountains tower above Leh to a height of eighteen thousand or nineteen thousand feet, their crests covered with eternal snow. The city itself, surrounded by a girdle of stunted aspen trees, rises upon successive terraces, which are dominated by an old fort and the palaces of the ancient sovereigns of Ladakh. Toward evening I made my entrance into Leh, and stopped at a bungalow constructed especially for Europeans, whom the road from India brings here in the hunting season. End of chapter 2, part 2. Recording by John Trevithick.